Well, if you turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 7, I want to begin reading in verse 21. I've entitled this message, Raising Sinful Kids in a Sinful World. Uh, it's really, my, I might have shortened it up simply by saying, what kind of world are we sending our kids into? Which is, actually isn't any shorter, is it? Anyway, but uh, it is a question that we have to ask ourselves because it's not just a matter of us training our children, but at some point we need to release them into the adult world. And how is that transition going to look and what, it's, what is it going to be like? If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin reading in verse 21? And Jesus, of course, is the speaker here, and it's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he kind of bottom lines the whole testimony. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the stream rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I ask as we reflect on this passage, your Holy Spirit would reflect on us, that Lord, we pray for uh, surrendered hearts to hear your heart and allow you to begin to work in us in a deeper and richer way than we ever imagined. We trust you for this, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, please. I want to begin a little differently this morning. I want to begin by showing you a short video and um, that I hope won't be pointing a finger, but just making an important point. So why don't we let that roll and, and um, let us enjoy what we're about to watch. Can I get your name and your major? I'm Tristan Tucker, and my major is finance and management. Uh, my name is Gianna. I'm a nursing major. Damarell Moore-Lopez, accounting. Ryan Alexander, anthropology. Sheree Favreau, and I'm major in government and international politics. Can you tell me who this is? No. no. Who is this gentleman? I have no idea. I don't recognize who that is. No. No. Ooh, I'm not sure. I don't know who that is. Uh, don't know. No? Don't care about politics. <laughs> I don't know. Joe Biden. Oh, John McCain. I have no idea, but I probably should, but I also don't pay attention to a lot. Was that a former president? Yeah, was that mm, Nixon, maybe? Oh, that's, um, I've seen that guy before. I feel bad, I'm not sure who that is. Is that Bill Clinton? Politician of sorts. Ah, oh, dude, I feel like I know him. I don't want to guess wrong, so I'm just not going to guess. Uh, Richard Nixon. Oh, God, I don't remember his name. 
No, that is not Nixon. <laughs> it starts with Ronald Reagan. Got it. I don't know which one. No, I can't. That's Kim Kardashian. Ryan, who is this? Kim Kardashian. Yeah, that's Kim Kardashian. 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 Can you tell me who's running for president besides Hillary Clinton? Um, it's a guy with a lot of money. This is gonna make me look stupid. I don't want to do this. Mission accomplished. Can you tell me the name of the Vice President of the United States? Joe Biden. Can you tell me uh, who is a current U.S. Senator? Any current U.S. Senator? My Senator is Claire McCaskill. <laughs> well, as I said, I am not trying to point a finger, but rather to make a point. Many social scientists have observed that today's young people, who those we particularly young adults in what we call the millennial generation between 18 and 35 years of age, they say of them that they're the best educated and the least informed generation in our history. In other words, they um, have a, a lot of information in their heads. In fact, they have information to such a degree that they can't even process it all. And yet, in issues that really affect their life directly and dramatically, they're amazingly obtuse. In a way, you could say that they built this beautiful-looking house, but it's built on a foundation of sand. And the question I think we have to ask is, how did this happen? Now, some of us are sitting there saying, well, you know, I'm a Christian, and I raised my kids in the church, and they're doing a whole lot better. Possibly. But statistics don't bear that out. But suddenly we have to understand that this change that's taken place in our place is subtle, it's, it's happened incrementally, but it's also happened consistently and intentionally that the less informed a populace it is, the easier it is to control them. And despite the fact that we may not be conspiratorialists, there is really a driving force behind it. And it didn't just happen every day, yesterday. In fact, it really started after the printing of the Bible, of all things, when we find that the printing of the Bible launched something that was called the Reformation, the, the, the reforming of the church, that the abuses of an autocratic uh, religious institution began to so suffocate so many people that there were men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and Tyndale and a whole list of men that you may or may not have any familiarity with who basically discovered when the Bible was read that it opened up a whole new understanding of life and of God and what it means to be a follower. That this is something that we have to understand is central. That the church has always tended to flourish when the Bible was read and understood. And it's always kind of gone into an era of darkness when that didn't happen. 
And amazingly, we live in a day and age where there are more Bibles and resources available to us than at any time in human history. If you take what people knew a hundred years about the Bible and you compare it today, we have over a million times more available information to us, easily, more easily accessed than the other people in, in the world history. And yet, as most researchers say, we are living in a day of biblical illiteracy and not just the secular world because they find that only, as we've talked about, only 9% of people like you and me, Bible-believing, evangelical, born-again Christians, only 9% of those within the church today actually can identify a list of eight major doctrinal positions that are defined by the Bible. In other words, they really don't know what the Bible says. They assume that they do. But how again did this happen? Well, it was about 700 years ago where after the Bible had begun to open up people's vistas about the world around them, we experienced what was called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was the idea that there's not just God's truth, because before that we had the Bible, and the Bible was the truth. God's is the truth. But then came the Enlightenment. They said, well, that's true, but all truth is God's truth, so that we need to include all information. And suddenly, even though it was not immediately stated, suddenly a, a Plato, a Socrates, a Pythagoras, and the others began to have almost equal import with the things that the Bible said, that we need to compare these things and see how they line up. That gave place to a movement called rationalism. Now, these are philosophical movements, which are basically big men with big minds who are thinking big thoughts, and they set out to define what truth is and ultimately who God was. And I know most of us are not in the process of thinking that hard about much, but nonetheless, they did, and they moved from enlightenment to the idea of rationalism, and that basically the mind is how we know God. The mind, in a sense, becomes God because now I have to think through who God is. And over time, that became not good enough or not satisfactory enough, and so rationalism moved on to empiricism. And empiricism is like rationalism, but instead of saying, I know God with my mind, they said the only way you can know truth is by what you sense with your sensory perceptions. If I can't measure it, if I can't hold it, if I can't taste it, if I can't see it, if I can't smell it, if I can't hear it, it doesn't exist. And so out of that came things like creation or evolution is. Evolution was born of the rationalistic age. Basically, it began to say that our senses are really God because that's how God is known. But over time, that non-spiritual approach became incredibly unsatisfying because, you see, men are basically inherently religious. As Malcolm Muggridge put it so simply, he says, if God is dead, somebody is going to have to take his place. So that we replaced it with what was called skepticism. Skepticism said nothing is God. God is dead. We don't believe it. And that gave birth to modern atheism, which was something that really is almost unheard of prior to the 18th century. The idea that people would come out and say, well, there is no God. Everybody pretty much agreed and still does pretty much uh, even today, atheism has had a 100% increase in adherence in the United States. It went from 1% to 2%. But most people believe there's a God. And yet, skepticism began to say, well, if there is a God, he's not knowable. 
In fact, most atheists are actually agnostics. They say that God can't be known. But at that point, it gave, gave place to another movement called existentialism. And existentialism essentially says, I am God. Man is God. And this whole view gave birth to the, what we call the postmodernist movement. And postmodernism is really defined by one term I think really captured it. It's called self reference, referentialism. What does that mean? What's self-referentialism mean? It means that the reference to truth and reality of good and evil, of right and wrong, is all based on how I see or feel about things. And so that it's not surprising as we begin to understand that we live now in a post-modernist culture with an existential philosophy underpinning it. We can say things like, you have your truth, and I have my truth, which is a logical inconsistency because if you have something that you believe is true and I have something I believe is true and, uh, and those things don't, don't agree, then you're married. <laughs> See, this is, this is where the conflicts come, right? This is where the collisions take place because my, th my view of truth doesn't really sync up with your view of truth or of reality. And suddenly we have a struggle. And, but what we know is that we both can be wrong. One of us can be right and the other one wrong. But we both can't be right. But we can't be right. And that's why someone put it well. Oswald Chambers put it well. He said, the essence or the basis of wisdom is humility. It's that admission, I could be wrong. But in the postmodernist world, that question doesn't really come up that I could be wrong. It just simply says, as you live in your reality, I live in mine. Even to the point where some leading thinkers of our day, guys like Elon Musk, father of the Tesla, has declared that we live within a computer, just like the Matrix. And we just have to decide, are we going to take the blue pill or the red pill? Are we going to take the red pill and break out of the, of the computer game and, and become the authors of our own destiny? Or are we going to continue to take the blue pill and stay in the game? And you and I are sitting there going, this, is, this, this guy may be smart, but he's also whacked. And I would just simply say he's smart and whacked. But the point is, this is no longer look because it doesn't really matter because look how successful he is. It must be working for him. Increasingly, we find that postmodernism has found its way into our culture, especially because our schools, in fact, really reflect it without even saying it. But when we hear people referring to being their own moral code... I'm my own moral code. I decide what's right for me and what's wrong for you. So that, how does that work out? Well, when Eric Harris and, and, and uh, Dylan Klebold walked into Columbine High School and began shooting and killing their classmates, their explanation was, I, I am God and I decide what's right and wrong. I decide who lives and who dies. Because after all, they write their own moral code. Basically, we look at religion. They look at religion as being a designer thing, something that I write up for myself. I create my own religious view to fit with my own particular tastes. 
But what's interesting is that as one of the writers speaking on this issue said, it's not that they approve of certain behaviors, they just don't disapprove. Because being intolerant is the only thing that cannot be tolerated. So that having a distinct opinion about something becomes almost a flaw. And the concern is, well, you're so critical, you're so judgmental. And yet Paul makes this interesting statement to the Corinthians. He says, you know, a spiritual man judges all things. Let me add my, my addendum. Everybody judges all things. Right now, you're sitting there looking at me, and you're making judgments about me almost nonstop. You're saying, I agree, I disagree, he's whacked, he's an old guy, he needs to get off the stage and retire. I mean, we can have all these conversations going on right now in our minds without even really stopping necessarily for any length of time upon that. You may be sitting there saying, how long is this going to go on? And you're going to be amazed. But the whole point is that we cannot do anything without passing judgment. I'm going to go from here into the family center and have breakfast this morning, and I'm going to pass judgment on whether I like what I see or not. <laughs> we do this all the time. The whole point is we can't make any decisions. We can't live life without making judgments, without making decisions. What is condemned by Jesus is the kind of decisions and judgments we make about people that devalues that person. And so what we find is because there isn't a lot of deep thinking about these things and because we live in this soundbite era, a lot of people recitate platitudes that are barked out on TV and on Twitter and other things and they grasp on them because they're cleverly or catchy phrases put together. But we've really never thought, is that really true? For example, I was listening to a commentator and he made this interesting comment about uh, the, the latest scandals that are going on in the political scene. And he said, well, the FBI shouldn't release the information because we are a nation of traditions. And he just went right by that. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. No, we aren't. <laughs> Europe is a nation of traditions. <laughs> We're a nation of laws. There's a huge difference between those two things. But yet he said that and nobody even called him on it. And that's why I think I should have a direct line to TV talk shows. <laughs> but I think so many things like that just kind of go by and we don't even stop to think about, is that really true? In fact, even to challenge becomes like, you know, not very polite. Well, that's, what you, that's your point of view and I respect your point of view. No, I don't. I respect your right to have a point of view, but if your point of view is stupid, I'm not going to respect it. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, hopefully, in a less cruel way that it's stupid. <laughs> but this isn't just limited to the non-Christian world. That what you have to understand, if you have a generation that is steeped in this, in the schools and in the media and, and even in their own peer groups and influential forces in their life, it creates a way of thinking without them having time to really think about how they're thinking about things. I think this came out so clearly to me when I was reading an interview taken from CNN that uh, recently uh, one of the most influential young Bible teaching evangelical pastors in America today, um, known for his uber hipness and 
all of the rest. Uh, somebody that I've listened to and have really enjoyed his, his messages. I feel like he's really got an anointing on him that's really good. But as the revelation came out that, uh, that his choir director, who is also a member of their weekly worship team and also a home group, group leader in their church, is in a same-sex marriage relationship. Being asked about that, this was his, I quote his response, he says, Jesus was in the thick of an era where homosexuality, just like it is today, was widely prevalent. And I'm still waiting for someone to show me the quote where Jesus addressed it on the record in front of people. You won't find it because he never did. We have a lot of gay men and women in our church, and I pray that we always do. It goes on to say that his wife, who is also being interviewed, added, it's not our place to tell anyone how they should live. That's their journey. As I was looking at that and kind of stunned by what I heard, a few things came to my mind. That, First of all, that Jesus lived in a Jewish culture. That, yes, homosexual was prevalent in the Greek and the Roman world. But Jesus wasn't dealing with Greeks and Romans. He was dealing with the Jewish nation. And in Judaism, there was zero tolerance for homosexuality. It just never came up. It was dealt with, as we see the woman who was taken in adultery, if you were practicing gay and got caught, it was even more significant and more swift. There was basically a common concept based upon the Old Testament teaching that homosexuality was an abomination in the sight of God and should never be engaged in. And it pretty much kept homosexuality from being expressed. So Jesus did not address it, but what he did say was that marriage was between a man and a woman. He said it very, very clearly, very concisely. So how you overlook that, I don't know. But even the comment that his wife made say, well, we'd, that, you know, it's not our place to tell other people how to live. I thought to myself, but Paul not only spoke about homosexuality as being a sin and something that separates eternally from God, but, and, and please don't lose sight of what's going on here because a lot of times we attack the messenger because we don't like the sound of the message. The Bible says this, I don't say this. The Bible says that if you live in a homosexual lifestyle, it says if you're a liar, if you're greedy, if you're a thief, if you're a murderer, it has a whole list of things. It's just one of many things. It says you will not enter the kingdom of God. And yet there is a strong force, especially within the millennial churches, to say, well, you know, we don't want to alienate those people. And suddenly we begin to structure our messages based upon how the hearers respond to it. As this man's pastor, in fact, I went to try and say, does he agree with this? And I began to pull down his message and listen to things that he was saying. And he was saying, well, we're struggling with this issue because he says, if I, we come out strongly against it, then we, we lose the non-Christian we're trying to reach. And if we come, don't come out against it, we lose our constituency that supports us. And he says, well, I guess at the end of the day, we just have to say that homosexuality is sin end of conversation, I thought, the minute you begin to have debates as to how people are going to respond to the word when you preach it, you've already started towards crossing the Rubicon and entering into really questionable grounds. It's in short, because as Dan Allender put it very simply, he said, when the unthinkable 
becomes debatable, the debatable gradually becomes acceptable. So that I remember years ago when sitting with a group of pastors and the question of how the church should respond to the gay movement, I remember John Repsold, one of the pastors of there, just was listening to this Episcopalian pastor, bishop, who was sitting there saying, well, I don't know, we're kind of struggling between the, the issue of the compassion of the gospel of grace and, and the righteousness of God. And John just looked at him and said, dude, this is a no-brainer. The Bible's clear. In other words, what you're saying is unthinkable. And everybody around the table said, well, yeah, 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 that's right. It's very clear. That's what the Bible says. We, we can't compromise that. And yet today now we have comments like this where we're debating it. Suddenly the word of God that's very clear becomes something that's debatable. Is it really surprising that we're also finding that it's increasingly becoming acceptable? Today what I find is that so many Christians no longer read the Bible to discover what it says, but they read it to decide what they will accept about what it says. So that when this pastor's wife says that they're on their journey, we shouldn't tell anybody how to live. And I think to myself, let me see, 2 Timothy 4.2, rebuke, correct, and instruct Galatians 6, 1, you see your brother overtaken a fall, you go to him in the spirit of meekness. Um, Luke 17, 3, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. That was Jesus. The idea that suddenly, well, that's their journey and I don't want to interfere it isn't a biblical concept. And I always have to clarify, you can say to me, well, I don't agree with the Bible. Fine, at least you're being honest. What drives me insane was when people say, well, I believe the Bible except here and except there and except here and except there. That's intellectual dishonesty. Because you, you just say you don't believe in it and, and move on. Because then we can talk, we have a discussion on a level where you're really at, not one in which you're trying to pretend that you're at. It makes me wonder, have we already arrived at that point that Jesus spoke about when he said that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? He says, and then I will tell you plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. You were never part of my church. Now, this has confused many people who have read it over the years. Because how in the world can they prophesy? How can they do miracles? And how can they... they uh, drive out demons. And I just have thought about a lot and I came up with this answer. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. But I'll tell you what, when I listen to a young man who is anointed and gifted and empowered by God and I, I, I'm just amazed and I, I, I listen to him and then I hear him say something like this, I realize that he's part of a church that really believes in the miraculous power of healing and the driving out of demons and all these sorts of things. I mean, their worship is just incredible. The envy of the Christian church around the world. And yet, they say things like that. We end up judging Scripture 
and re rather than letting Scripture judge us. And that's really always the push, isn't it? Because I, I'm like you. When I read something in the Bible and it says, thou shalt, and I look at myself and say, I am, <laughs> I never enjoy that moment. I never say, oh, thank you, Lord, you've convicted me of guilt again. You've shown me my sin once again. But I have to admit, I, how do you pick up the Bible and read it honestly and intelligently and not have that experience on a regular basis? Because the purpose of the Holy Spirit, we're told in John 16, is to convict the world of sin. That's its ministry. And it's got a lot of work to do because I am a sinner, saved by grace, but I am the sinner. I've never found that God ha could look at me and say, you know, today is a day in which I cannot see one dark thing in your soul. And then I, I hear those people, sometimes public people, saying, well, I've never done anything wrong that I need to apologize for. I, got, I know immediately. They've never looked at their soul. <laughs> the Holy Spirit has not been... Because when the Holy Spirit comes in your life, He shows you, you got issues, dude. You got baggage. And if you don't believe me, talk to my wife. <laughs> She's keeping a list and checking. No, not really. <laughs> But you see, the problem is it doesn't just stop there. I can't, we just can't say, okay, well, that's the problem. It's so much more serious because as truth loses its authority, the society loses its stability. And the consequences are disastrous. Basically, these assaults on truth are like waves beating up against the house and if the foundation is a one of sand, the house will eventually collapse. It doesn't collapse overnight, but eventually it will collapse. And now the good news is, if your life is founded upon the truth, the rock of God's word, then come what may, in the end of the day, you're going to still be standing. But you may be looking out on a culture, a society, a nation that's in shambles and is wrecked. And it's not because of the bad guys out there. It's not because you didn't elect the right person. It's because it's so much more fundamental than that. It comes down to the fact that we built a life and a culture on something that isn't truth and it can't sustain the weight that is just part of the normal battering that life goes through. This is so well illustrated by Sir John Glove, who almost 50 years uh, wrote a book called The Fate of Nations. He spent uh, most of his adult life studying 11 of the greatest nations in the history of the world, everything from Assyria to Britain. Uh, he, taught, he studied Chinese culture, Arab, Arab culture, Arab societies, uh, the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire. He goes through all of these great empires that have ruled the world, and he really traces them through the same six stages, uh, ending in what he calls decline and collapse. And one of the things that he says is all of these have the same characteristics. They follow the same pathways. Some of the things that he notes, he says that selfishness takes over for sacrifice. People start living, stop living sacrificially and they start living selfishly. It's every man for himself. And he notes, he says in general sense, he says there's an indifference to religion. In other words, your faith becomes something that is secondary in your life. It no longer is a governing authority. Increasing materialism 
laxity in sexual morals, corruption of the officials. I like this one. He says, he says, politicians always seemed to amass large fortunes while they were in office. You wonder, why would anybody want to run for a political office? Because today, politicians tend to amass large fortunes while they are in office. I don't know how that works. How do, how do a, a couple of people not have a job and end up with $350 million in their personal bank account? I'm going to start a foundation. <laughs> There's a spending lavishly on their own benevolence. In other words, our own entitlements, that welfare movements, they even said that free medical care becomes uh, common within these cultures, ancient to new. And he says, until such a time as the economy collapses. They look at 11 great empires that have ruled the world. He says, they all come to this point where they can no longer sustain the weight of their own lifestyle and the economy collapses. And he ironically says, and all of them believe they are different and it will never happen to them. But most illuminating to me was that, especially in the light of the video that we just watched, was the role that celebrities played in these cultures ancient to modern. He said this, the heroes of declining nations are always the same, the athlete, the singer, the actor. The extraordinary influence acquired by popular singers over young people with their erotic songs and obscene sexual language increasingly resulted in decline in sexual morality. And ultimately, he says, in the breakup of the marriage and the collapse of societies, the families fall apart as well. When you look at the millennial generation, you realize that 50% of millennials have grown up in single-parent home at some point in their life. Uh, social scientists tell you, long-term, that's unsustainable for a culture. And then he finally summarized by saying, normally the rise and fall of great nations are due to internal reasons. Ten generations, 250 years, essentially, suffice to transform a hardy and enterprising pioneer into the captious citizen of the welfare state. The word captious means uh, whining, petty, complaining, groveling, he says they, they become the people who live as Rome did for circus and bread and weren't concerned as long as they had bread and circuses for their entertainment, they were happy. Part of the sobering dynamic as I was reading this whole thing was that uh, July 4th, we celebrated our 240th birthday. Across the board, none of them lasted much longer than 250 years. So we ask, is this going to be our fate? Well, you know, it's interesting today that 35%, 35.4% to be accurate, according to what I was able to find on the internet, of Americans uh, live on government's assistance. 35%. Um, uh, only 60% of people who uh, are able to work actually have a job. 40% don't. I remember my friend Ronnie Cohen said, you know, in Israel, we have a real problem. He says, we've got a third of the country is in the military, a third of the country works, and a third of the country is on welfare. And he says, 
The problem is it's the same third. <laughs> In other words, it's an elephant on roller skates. We can't sustain the weight of what we're carrying. And I thought, how much more true that is in ours because it's more like a half. Is this to be our fate? Well, according to Malcolm Muggridge, who was probably, he was a, a, a British journalist, probably one of the sharpest satirists and, and uh, commentators on uh, society in the in tradition of a G.K. Chesterton. He said, so the final conclusion would surely be that whereas other civilizations have brought been brought down by attacks of barbarians from without. Ours has a unique distinction of training its own destroyers at its own educational institutions, and then providing them with facilities for the propagating of their destructive ideology far and wide, all at the public expense. Thus did Western man decide to abolish himself creating his own boredom out of his affluence, his own vulnerability out of his own strength, his own impotence out of his own erotomania, himself blowing the trumpet that brought the walls of his own city tumbling down, and having convinced himself that he was too numerous, labored with pill and scalpel and syringe, talking about abortion, to make himself fewer, until at last, having educated himself into imbecility and polluted and drugged himself into stupefaction, he keeled over a weary, battered old brontosaurus and became extinct. Is that to be our fate? Well, I, I suspect it will. I, I don't mean to be a doomsayer, and I'm not even being prophetic. I'm just telling you, as a, a student of history, one of the things you find is that history does not repeat itself, but human nature does. That it's not like there's some kind of fatalistic cycle that we can't avoid. It's just simply that people, given the same choices, the same circumstances, always tend to make the same choices and end up with the same conclusion. So it's easy, not only does Glove, but a, a dozen other, maybe a hundred other historians have tracked the same pathways and the same dynamics and developments from that starting as the pioneers who boldly go where no one has gone, gone before to ending up being not so bold pioneers who are on Orange County housewives. I mean, the, the, you see this stretch and suddenly you realize that where we looked at a man like George Washington or an Abraham Lincoln and we drew inspiration from their leadership, now we look to Kanye as potentially our next president, or so he says. And I laughed about it. Kanye becoming the next president and I realized we've got one, a celebrity running for president right now. It's not so far-fetched <laughs> because as the largest number of, generational number of 88 million people are rising up into the positions of leadership and influence in our culture, people who have graduate degrees, things in anthropology and, 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 and degrees in, in, in mathematics and, and in international government uh, studies and government, and can't identify who the vice president is or even Ronald Reagan, but they know who Kim Kardashian is. I'm just saying, it's, it, it's frightening to think about it. 
really? I mean, am I really going to look at Kim, I mean, bless her heart, and say, now there's a role model that I can follow. I mean, is that, I, I, I'm sorry, that sounds so harsh, I know, so unloving, so unkind. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You know, what I'm saying is I don't think there's a lot that you and I can do at this point to change the course of human history, at least on a national or international level. And some of it is prophetically foreordained that some of these things are things that God is using to bring us to the end times or fulfill what He promised will happen in the end times. And after the first year, we're going to dedicate the first three Sundays in January going over the prophecies that talk about what the future holds. Uh, but my point is, that may be, it may be too late to fix all of that stuff, but it's not too late to fix you and maybe even to fix your own kids. That as the waves come, and they will come, and maybe everybody you know, their house is going to crash because they built their life on sand or cinema or something else, but you'll be able to stand fast in whatever that means because founded upon the rock, the solid rock of Jesus Christ. That's why Lifeway Research did a survey, and they found that today, 70% of those between 18 and 30 years of age who used to go to church in high school no longer attend, 70%. They quit attending at the age of 23. 34% of them said they had not yet returned even after they reached the age of 30. So they're not only leaving the church, but they're not coming back to the church. Now, if they go to college, you'd bump it up 10%. If your kid goes off to college, 80% of those kids who leave our high school groups that go to college will not come back to the church. Why? Have you been in a college classroom lately? <laughs> I mean, there is, we call it secular humanism. It's a philosophy that basically says that Christianity is a dead brontosaurus from the past and there's nothing there, it's an empty suit, it has nothing of value, you need to take a new progressive approach. And what we find is our young people are coming out of a Pollyanna experience where the youth group is more concerned with having fun and keeping them out of trouble than it is really getting them rooted and grounded in the faith of Jesus Christ. The Bible tends not to be taught because after all, it's really boring. And as a consequence, youth group becomes an entertainment center. So what do we do? Where do we go? How do we respond? Well, let me give you four simple recommendations. Jesus said, those who hear this word of mine are the ones who are going to experience a solid foundation. In other words, it's about teaching our children, teaching ourselves the word. And I would add to it, teaching it as if it matters. Not just simply that you learn. And somebody asked the question on Wednesday night, what would I teach kids? You know, and what are, if I were to hang things on the walls, what would I hang on the walls? Well, 
you know, I got to be very careful because my wife owns all the walls in the house, so I have to get her permission first. But I said, there are, are three basic things that I would want my kids to hear today. The first one, and this surprises people, I'd want them to know the creation story. Why? Because above everything else, we can get into the whole conversation about the, the, you know, evolution versus creationism and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of resources that give both sides of that story. But it, it starts with one simple statement that is pivotal to all thinking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, including you and me. It starts with that premise that God is the center of the universe and He created you to be the center of His universe. And that unique relationship being made in the image of God is the diametrical difference between creation, which says you are the accidental collision of chromosomal molecules and somehow stuff became people. <laughs> So that somehow matter developed consciousness and awareness and beauty and morals. It's a huge difference between the two. So that the logical conclusion of a world that's made by man, that we created ourselves, is a world in which we become the center of the universe. We are God and we look at morals as not something that has any kind of great authority in it, but rather morals as simply a convenient tool to keep societies from destroying each other. So I'd start with the creation story. <laughs> I wouldn't go into all of what I just said, but I would lay that out. And secondly, I teach in the Ten Commandments. Oh, now you don't want to be legalistic. Oh, yeah. I just know as a kid seeing the Ten Commandments hanging on the classroom wall, that's how ancient I am. I mean, sometimes I had to crawl across dinosaur bones to get up to see them, but nonetheless, they were hanging on the wall. It had a profound effect upon my thinking. There's only one God. You just had no gods before me. <laughs> You'll keep the Sabbath day holy. You'll love your mother and your father. You'll honor your mother and father. You won't steal. You won't lie. You won't cheat. You won't commit adultery. I, you're, you look at that every day, and you know what happens? You start thinking, He's looking over my shoulder, and I need to recognize that there's a lawgiver. Soon enough, you discover that you break those laws regardless of how much you know them. But one of the things that Paul said to the Galatians, it is the law that brings us to Christ. It's the law that makes us aware of our sin. It's a law that realizes we can't say, the fact that I have to say, God, I am a sinner because I have lied, I've cheated, I've stolen, I've done things that you said I shouldn't do, and I, I'm a sinner in your sight, God. I've worshiped other gods, literally in my case. Forgive me. And that's why the third thing I would teach him is the gospel of grace. John 3, 16. That God wants to forgive you for your sins. Yeah, that's why Paul said to Timothy, he told him, 2 Timothy 3, 15, from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. From infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. You see, we need to model and encourage them to read them for themselves that's why Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 27, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. We need to teach them the whole will of God. But secondly, we need to allow them to wrestle with their doubts. Paul commended, or Luke commended the Bereans because he said they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Too many parents don't allow their kids to have crisis of faith. And too many times in the church we're going, look, 
This is the Bible. We believe it. That settles it. Jesus said it. We're not going to talk about it. Stop talking about that. And we squelch that natural in, in, inquisitiveness and that natural questioning. And as I would always say, I remember I was teaching a, a class many years ago and I gave my students this homework assignment. I said, I want you to study the story of Pharaoh and Moses and God hardening Pharaoh's heart and, and ask you, was God righteous in hardening Pharaoh's heart? And after the class, I had this one student come and says, why did you ask us that question? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I just, I don't think it's right to ask us that question. I said, are you afraid you're going to find out that God's unrighteous? I said, trust me, search it out. You'll find out God's got this. God is righteous. But you have to ask the question in order to get the kind of answer that matters. We're afraid to let kids many times ask the hard questions. Remember, I was doing youth ministry here not too many years ago, and I dealt with the issues. Why is homosexual, it's homosexuality wrong? Why is sex before marriage or outside of marriage wrong? Why is it wrong to use drugs? Why is it wrong to smoke pot? Even if it's legal, why is it wrong? Why, and you start going through these questions, and you start engaging these kids and providing them reasonable explanations, and it was amazing. They just wanted a reasonable explanation because they're getting peppered with it by their friends and at school and by their teachers and other people. They're getting pounded with this kind of stuff all the time, and they don't know the answers, and so they're asking you. Give them a reason for their faith. That's why, thirdly, we need to not only let them wrestle with their doubts, we need to provide them with intelligent answers. People put, Peter put it with way. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason. And the word reason in the original there literally means a logical working out. A logical working out. Give them a logical working out of why you believe what you believe, of the hope that is in you. He adds, but do this with gentleness and respect. But being prepared to do that. I know some of you are sitting going, oh, gee, this is a lot of work. I'm already giving up kickoff. What do you want from me? I'm so impressed to see so many of you had DVRs. So <laughs> it is work. Laying, building foundations is a lot of work. I remember when we were building our house some 25 years ago or so now, but I just remember when they excavated the ground and they came out and put the forms up and they running the, all the pipes and the wiring and all this kind of stuff. And eventually, eventually, eventually they poured the foundation. I thought, this house is never going to get built. There's all this activity and nothing to show for it. And once the foundation was finally in, wow. It went up fast. The foundation is the most important part of any building. A building cannot be any stronger, cannot be any taller or any wider than the foundation. The foundation determines everything. It's the boundaries. It's the perimeters. What is the foundation? Foundations are hard, arduous work and expensive, but they are key to the building. What is the foundation that you're building underneath your kids? Which brings me to my last point. We have to engage the world, not hide from it. We need to engage the world, not hide from it. Well, if I get asked a question I don't know how to answer, then go look up an answer. You know, I'm amazed what Google does for my life. 
Quite honestly, I'll tell you, I used to sit and go through, have this massive library in my home and here at the church, spending a lot of money for all of these books because if I wanted to know something, I had to go and read through so much stuff. And today I do word searches and I get the world. I mean, a lot of it's whack job stuff. I get that. But it's amazing. If you know the word, you can sort it out really, really quickly. But the whole point is, don't hide from the world out there. Don't be afraid to engage it. Because we're supposed to be those who are striving to give them a reason for the hope that is in us. And many of them have concluded that we don't have any reason. They, they've concluded that we just believe blindly that we are those mind-numb robots that follow obediently uh, at whoever, follow whoever shouts the loudest. You can become a critical thinker. And you can become informed if you just apply your time and your energy and efforts to it. You can make a difference. I really believe with all of my heart, friends, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this. I predicate my, my wife and I are predicating our life on this, that, <clears throat> that there are good odds that the world that we're living in is going to change dramatically over the next few decades and not in a good way. Just little things, you know, topics that aren't even being talked about by the politicians. The things like intelligent, uh, artificial intelligence and robotics are going to eliminate at least 20 million jobs in America within 10 years. And they've already started. Your hamburgers will be made by robots. Um, hotel concierges will be replaced by robots. They've already done it in certain countries already. That there will be not cashiers. That's why they have the self-help things, you know. And I'm, I, I'm one of those guys. I go, <laughs> I go to the scanner and do it myself because I don't want to wait in line and it's quicker. But eventually, it just will go to intelligent shelving where you just pick up the item and it'll all make a store in, in Sweden that does this right now. Nobody works there. You just go and put your thumb on the reader, door opens, you go in, whatever you take off the shelf, it automatically sends to, uh, the, to your account and it bills your bank and takes the wakes withdrawal and then you walk out 24 hours a day and get it whatever you want. How many jobs just disappeared? Banks, as you know it, will no longer exist. We're talking about within your lifetime, maybe even, maybe within the next decade. Because we'll go away from currency, and this isn't just speculation or Bible stuff. This is actually what is the plan that we're going to go away from currency because you can't have a run on a bank that is all digital. Banks want it. In fact, a, a bank in, in, in Brazil and a bank in San, uh, New York City just did a blockchain transaction. You know what that is? It's a transaction that involves no currency and involves only digital trading. And it was only for $35,000, but they wanted to see how it would work. And it's where they're going. So eventually, the, you'll link onto the computer and you'll do, well, don't we do this already? You have to understand, we're going through a dramatic change world. What does it create when suddenly you have 20 million jobs, 20 more million people who don't have jobs? And it just goes on and on. I, I'm, I'm getting into New Year's messages here. But it's just, I mean, it's a dramatically changing world that we're in. And we need to understand that if we don't have our own lives 
founded on a rock. If we don't put, our, put a rock underneath our children's, they're not going to know how to deal with what's happening around them. The end. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to hear your heart in these things and recognize that you said in your word, in the end times will be perilous, terrible, troubling times, that men will be lovers themselves instead of lovers of God, that they'll no longer put up with sound teaching, but they'll surround themselves with teachers who will tickle their ears to tell them the things that they want to hear. And Lord, I pray that we would recognize the signs of the times in which we live, that we would not, it said a prudent man in Proverbs sees danger, danger coming and prepares himself. Lord, help us to be prudent in our own times and not just simply kid ourselves as others and empires and nations in the past have that, well, it's, we're, we're different. It won't happen to us. It will. And I pray, Lord, that not only history tells us that, but your word tells us that. Help us, Lord, to be stirred up enough that we would be motivated to begin to address this issue in our own life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue in a time of worship and encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to partake of the elements of communion. I love, I love the Lord's Supper because it always brings us back to ground zero. It really brings us down to the foundation of our faith, that it's all about the fact that God so loved me that he gave his one and only son as a sacrifice for my sins that I might be saved. And if, that, if you've, that's your experience, I invite you to come just as an act of devotion and expression of your love and your commitment to him. If you need prayer, we'd be glad to pray with you myself. There'll be others in the wings, uh, a little bit less public, more discreet if you prefer. But we are, we're willing to pray for whatever the need is you have in your life. Even if you simply realize, I don't know Jesus and I'm not ready to go to heaven, then this is, uh, this is an opportunity for you to confess Christ and ask him into your heart. So we invite you to come.